Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to The 34. Senator Sanders, I want to start with you on this question of Russian interference in the election. What do you make of it? Well, I think when you have the intelligence agencies uh, saying that that happened, uh, when you have John McCain, when you have Democrats, when you have a bipartisan effort saying that we need an investigation, because this is very serious stuff, I think we go forward. Uh, but I don't want to go backwards. I mean, I think we've got to go forward. We've got to take a hard look at the role that the Russians played uh, in uh, this election process. We'll see where the investigation goes. But for Donald Trump to summarily dismiss all of this uh, makes no sense to me at all. Noam Chomsky, I'd like to ask you about something that's been in the news a lot lately. Uh, obviously, all the cable channels, that's all they talk about these days, is the, is the whole situation of uh, Russia's supposed intervention in American elections uh, uh, for a country that's intervened in so many uh, governments and so many elections around the world. That's kind of a strange topic. But I know you've referred to this as a joke. Uh, could you uh, give us your view on what's happening and, and why there's so much emphasis on this particular issue? Pretty remarkable fact that, uh, first of all, it is a joke. Uh, most half of the world is cracking up in laughter. Uh, the United States doesn't just interfere in elections; it uh, overthrows governments it doesn't like, uh, uh, institutes military dictatorships. Uh, simply in the case of Russia alone, it's the least of it. Uh, the U.S. government under Clinton. Uh, intervened quite blatantly and openly. They didn't try to conceal it to get their man Yeltsin in, uh, in all sorts of ways. So this, as I say, the, uh, it's, it's considered, it's turning the United States again into a laughing stock in the world. So why are the Democrats focusing on this? In fact, why are they focusing so much attention on the one element of Trump's programs which is fairly reasonable. Uh, the one ray of light in this gloom uh, trying to reduce tensions with Russia. That's, the tensions on the Russian border are extremely serious. Uh, they could escalate to a major terminal war. Uh, efforts to try to reduce them uh, are, should be welcomed. As a couple of days ago, the former uh, a U.S. ambassador to Russia, Jack Matlock, came out and said he just can't believe that uh, so much attention is being paid to apparent efforts by the incoming administration to uh, establish connections with Russia. I said, sure, that's just what they ought to be doing. guest David Cleon in the studio, and we're going to discuss Russiagate, Russia hysteria, and the state of journalistic integrity in the United States. Welcome, David. Hi. Thanks for having me. So just to give the audience a background, you do have a master's degree in Soviet history from the University of Chicago, and I believe you also yeah. lived and worked in Russia for a time. Yeah. It's been a while, actually, since I did, but, uh, but I did spend time there, uh, mostly, you know, teaching English. I did a undergraduate history thesis there. Uh, I'm really due for another visit, but I, but I keep up. Yeah, and you seem to have a more authentic knowledge of some of the things that have transpired in the last few years um, in regards to Russiagate. And I think your analysis of the situation is pretty um, spot on because it finds the middle ground between not pushing Russia hysteria, which could also be damaging, but actually talking about the facts and what the actual problems are. 
Uh, there was a piece that you put in The Guardian in January of 2017 on the growing panic in the intelligence community in regards to um, Trump. Walk us through your analysis of how that started. Well, you know, I think that one of the problems with Russiagate and um, and sort of how how the story has been released to the public has to do with the realities of um, how the intelligence community breaks information uh, through the media and the skepticism that that's engendered over the past. Uh, so, you know, it, I, I think it was in the summer of 2016 that we first started uh, hearing about Russiagate. Uh, you know, at the height of the election, uh, although we didn't call it that at the time. And generally, we would hear about it through news stories from mainstream outlets that were sourced to anonymous intelligence community officials. It might have been John Brennan or James Clapper or somebody like that. Um, and these are not people, you know, who have tremendous amounts of credibility. I mean, these are people who've lied about uh, NSA spying, about torture, about uh you know, WMD, about all kinds of things. Central Intelligence Agency Director John Brennan is facing calls to resign after admitting CIA, CIA officials spied on a Senate panel probing the agency's torture and rendition program. The allegation surfaced in March when members of the Senate Intelligence Committee openly accused CIA officials of illegally monitoring their staffers' computers. At the time, John Brennan denied the spying allegations and said those who make them will be proved wrong. The allegations of you know CIA hacking into you know Senate computers, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we, we wouldn't do that. I mean, that's 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 just beyond the the uh, you know the scope of, of reason in terms but of what we would do. When the facts come out on this, I think a lot of people who are claiming that there has been this tremendous sort of spying and monitoring and hacking will be proved uh, wrong. Well, CIA Director John Brennan reversed his stance this week after an internal CIA inquiry found the spying indeed took place with the involvement of 10 agency employees. Brennan apologized to lawmakers in a briefing earlier this week. The CIA has also retracted counter-allegations that Senate staffers illegally removed classified information from a top-secret facility. The White House is standing by Brennan, citing President Obama's, quote, great confidence in his leadership. But at least two members of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democrats Mark Udall of Colorado and Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, are calling for Brennan's resignation. And, and anyone who's been following national security news over the last uh, 15 or 20 years is, is aware of um, or should be aware of, of the dangers of just trusting the uh, uh, intelligence community blindly. At the same time, that doesn't mean that uh, there is no Russian intelligence community, too, uh, and that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that there aren't real threats to American national security. It just means that mm -hmm. people were understandably skeptical. And when it, when it comes to Russiagate, there were plenty of external signs that something was happening that were observable. Uh, and also, if you had, and here's where I think I've had a little bit of, a, of an edge in my analysis, um, if you were paying attention to U.S.-Russia relations prior to 2016, if that was something you actually cared about as a news topic, as a policy topic, as an academic topic, whatever it was, um, everything that was happening made sense in that context. It wasn't it wasn't completely baffling. Like the idea that, that Russian spies operate in the U.S. and uh, try to make connections with 
business people and uh, and policymakers, especially at the margins, is not new at all. It's been true for many decades uh, in the Soviet and post-Soviet period. Uh, and, of course, America does the same thing in Russia and many other countries. Um, and then, likewise, the fact that Russia uses um, hacking and uh, information warfare and bots on social media networks, none of that was new either. And anyone who had followed Ukraine or Georgia or Estonia closely knew, knew exactly. all Exactly. So, so what was newsworthy, I think, uh, and I said this in my most recent piece in BuzzFeed, what was newsworthy about Russiagate was that these tactics were appearing to have some effect in national politics in the U.S. And for that, I think we have to look less to Russia, which, which is a constant, and even adversarial Russia, which is more mm-hmm. or less a constant, uh, and more to the weaknesses of, of our own political system uh, and our media mm-hmm. culture. And uh, so it's not that I it's not that I either want to spread Russiagate hysteria, which has gone far enough, Lord knows, or let Russia off the hook. Uh, I do believe that there was a Russian intervention into the U.S. election in 2016. I think it certainly had some effect. And in a close enough election, I don't think we can rule out the possibility that it tipped the outcome, although I don't think we can conclusively say it did either. Uh, but that's sort of beside the point. Um, I think that what we really need to be focused on, though, in terms of how we tell this story and in terms of how we, you know, think about our politics going forward is what is it about our political system that made it so vulnerable to a a foreign interference campaign? And in many ways, a very almost half-assed foreign interference campaign. I mean, you'll hear about some of these these social media things and you'll be like, this is ridiculous. How can this be important? And and that's a that's a reasonable question until you remember well like look who Trump and the people around him are right I mean how could mm-hmm. that Nesnitskaya meeting happen because Donald Jr. is an idiot uh, because Jerry he's an, an idiot. idiot and and if and if and so like there's no question that America is responsible for electing Donald Trump, uh, not so much the American people writ large, since it was only a minority who voted for him, but that our institutions, our media, our electoral college, our Republican Party, uh, and so on, are, are responsible for this for this collective failure. But it's also mm-hmm. pretty clear to me, observing the evidence, and has been since these stories started, that they did so in part through some degree of collusion with the Russian government and that they did so with some degree of consciousness of that. Um, and that where we really need to locate the problem then is in their total corruption. And I'm referring pretty much to the entire G- GOP here. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, their their corruption and their openness, not just to Russian influence, but to all kinds of foreign influence and, of course, domestic oligarch influence. Uh, these are people who will take money from anybody in the pursuit of power, mm-hmm. and they did. And that's what Russiagate is really about. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I don't disagree with that. I tend to be more of the it's a nothing burger side of it, but I do grant that the things you're saying are absolutely valid. I guess at the end of the day, my concern focuses more on what you pinpointed with our failings as a country in the United States. Because this isn't the first time we've had foreign interference in anything. And honestly, you can look at some of the correct the record numbers and what they spent to influence the election. That's another form of influence. There's just so many forms of influence in our election that we that you're right. We need to look at 
what we're doing wrong and how we can change that dynamic across the board without getting into, yeah. um, you know what I'm saying? So uh, you had mentioned mm-hmm. that the DNI report in this piece was sloppy. Just how sloppy was it? God, it's actually been a while since I've thought about that. Uh, <laughs> it's a good piece. Then. I had to reread it. <laughs> yeah, I, I have actually not read that piece since shortly after it was published. But uh, I remember when I was asked to write that now. The DNI uh, report, as I recall, had a major emphasis on um, RT. U.S. intelligence declassified another report accusing Russia of meddling with the 2016 presidential election. Many expected at least some evidence of the alleged hacks to be presented to the public, but instead the report has almost exclusively focused on RT. Alexei Yarnshevsky is joining me now live with more on this. Alexei, tell us what is in this new report. What a time to be alive, Manila. This report was highly anticipated by many uh, with expectations that will be some new evidence of alleged Russian hacks presented. Instead, this report almost solely attacks RT for uh, our coverage going back to the 2012 and even before that. Now, the report kicks off with a statement saying that many of the key judgments in the assessment rely on a body of reporting from multiple sources that are consistent with our understanding of Russian behavior, insights into Russian efforts, including specific cyber operations, and Russian views of key U.S. players derive from multiple corroborating sources. The sources are, of course, unnamed. Now, in a later part of the of the report, it says that we assess Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. We further assess Putin and the Russian government developed a clear preference for President Donald Trump, President-elect Trump. Uh, no evidence was cited of that notion as well. It goes on by talking specifically about RT. On August 6th, RT published an English-language video called Julian Assange Special. Do WikiLeaks have an email that will put Clinton in, pr- Clinton in prison? An exclusive interview with Assange. It goes on talking about the other video. So RT's most popular video, according to the report, um, on Secretary Clinton, how 100% of Clinton's charity went to themselves, had more than 9 million views on social media platforms, and RT's most popular English-language video about the president-elect Trump will not be permitted to win. Feature, featured Assange had 2.2 million views, 11.2 million combined, and if we remember, 62 million people voted for Trump. Now, uh, basically, it goes on to say, accuse RT of also uh, giving voice to the third-party candidates. In the quote, it says, in an effort to highlight the alleged lack of democracy in the United States, RT broadcast, hosted, and advertised third-party candidate debates and ran reporting supportive of the political agenda of those candidates. Uh, And uh, didn't do a particularly convincing job of... I mean, let me say this. one, One of many solutions that have been put forward by kind of security hawks for you know how we can prevent the next Russiagate is uh, to treat RT as uh, as a foreign agent and not as a valid media company. And I dissent from this, even though I think there is certainly a strong case that RT is a foreign agent. I mean, it's it is owned and operated by the Kremlin. It clearly serves uh, some foreign policy goal of the Russian government. Uh, at the same time, I'm wary of anything that seems like media censorship. I mean, yeah. you know, we, we allow, uh, you know, Al Jazeera America, where I used to work, it doesn't exist anymore, but Al Jazeera does, uh, is, is operated by a U.S. ally, Qatar, 
controversial mm-hmm. one, but still, uh, the BBC and the CBC and so on, and and, and many other, uh, you know, and our own yeah. CBS or or whatever. Like there, there are many other state-owned and operated uh, media companies. And frankly, if you're a if you're a security hawk and you want confrontation with Russia, you could also, you know, talk about Voice of America or Radio Free or Radio Liberty, which you know, are pretty much RT mm-hmm. in reverse for uh, propagandizing to that part of the world on behalf of the U.S. government, and which, you know, yep. during the Soviet period had some actual, I think, uh, humane purpose uh, just in, you know, penetrating a closed media environment, uh, which is, in a sense, what RT does. I just think they do it very badly and hackishly and in ways that transparently serve a, a repressive government. Um, but that's not to say... They've never had anyone good on any of their channels. They even have friends, American leftists, who've appeared on RT programs. And while I would absolutely I think a lot of them, a lot of them feel sheepish about it in retrospect, and I would, um, uh, I, I would discourage anyone in the American left from appearing on RT right now, just for one's own credibility. But uh, but I don't think it's because they're Russian spies. Um, I don't think that censorship is. Uh, is an effective way to reduce this threat in the future. Um, I do think that there are ways in which RT was part of it. I mean, obviously, RT is operated by the same government that did all these other things. So it's, it's you know, not a stretch to say that there's some connection between them. Um, and you could see ways, I think, at the time that RT was kind of testing out talking points uh, that were then deployed uh, by by various partisans and by Twitter bots to kind of amplify those talking points uh, and and other social media bots. So there was a connection there, but um, but I think that the notion that RT by itself could have swung the election is absurd. I mean, the the real problem here is that Fox News is completely on board with these messages, and uh, and so is the the Republican Party. Um, mm-hmm. And not just Trump, but the entire leadership. I mean, for me, the the key moment that I've always honed in on that that really speaks to to what a disaster this is is um, mm-hmm. is Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, the the intelligence community goes to the leaders of both parties and Congress and and to the uh, White House, and they say that this attack is happening a few months before the election, and uh, Obama wants to make a statement to the public which I think if Obama himself had made would have carried a lot more credibility than just anonymous leaks from uh, the deep state. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, and, and McConnell said that uh, if you do that, I'm, I'm not going to confirm it and I'm going to attack it as part of it. And I think Obama, as was so often the case in his presidency, uh, showed weakness in response to that mm-hmm. instead of instead of what he should have done is gone out, made the announcement, and also excoriated Mitch McConnell as something like a traitor for for doing mm-hmm. that, and uh, and 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 taken the risk that it would have been seen as partisan. Uh, but he was so confident that Hillary Clinton would win, uh, and he <laughs> kind of wanted to brush this under the rug, and uh, that's obviously worked out catastrophically. But what it tells me is that Mitch McConnell is fully complicit in this entire interference scheme that he was. Uh, aware of the most classified information about what was happening and that he chose for partisan advantage and to steal a Supreme Court seat and pass a tax bill um, to, uh, to to politicize that. So, I mean, I, I think that 
I, I wish the media covered that as aggressively as it should. I, I wish the media covered that level Lots of, of uh, corruption and, and, and cynicism, I would say. Uh, but instead it gets written off as, you know, an attack on our country by the nefarious Russians and Trump as their puppet. And, and, and the full implications are never mapped out. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, I do want to sort of hone in on some stuff that you were saying about RT America, because I've spoken to several of the folks that are on RT America here in the United States. So are you differentiating the RT Russian station or RT America as a subsidiary? Are you lumping them together? Because guys like Ed Schultz and Lee Camp, Chris Hedges, they've all stated under no terms does, do they have any editorial control and that, indeed, Ed Schultz went to, so far as to say that he has more editorial control at RT America than he ever had at MSNBC. Yeah, well, I, I'm willing to believe that that's true for what are basically commentary shows. Um, but okay. I think that what I don't see a lot of from RT is hard reporting and uh, serious, not, you know, unbiased analysis. And I do see a lot of uh, trolling and aggressive spinning on behalf of Russian government policy. So in that context, okay. I think when, when journalists agree to be on RT, even if they have no interest in talking about Russia or, or shilling for Russia, I do think they lend what credibility they have to to a company that I don't think fundamentally serves the public interest. And I will stand up for Al Jazeera by contrast. I obviously am biased, but I thought so before I ever worked there. That, mm-hmm. that while they didn't have a perfect record uh, at all, and there were certainly scandals and questionable editorial decisions, that on the whole, uh, a lot of real serious journalists with integrity worked there and did real journalism, and uh, and I'm proud to have been with them. So, um, yeah, and you know what, David, I will grant that. I think, uh, that I, on, on, quite frankly, the criticisms that you're lobbying at RT, I'm going to lob at MSNBC. I'm going to lob at Fox. I'm going to lob at every broadcaster out there, practically, because they're all engaging yeah. in some sort of, whether it's a corporate paylord, whether it's a corporate oligarchy whether it's just rich guy, you, you name it, they all have a spin. I, we have a, a serious lack of journalistic integrity at this point. And I think Absolutely. Al Jazeera did fill that gap. And you're right, they did have, I mean, I would go to that site for news more often than any other one. Um, and I'm sorry that their demise came um, Aren't we all? Came through. <laughs> well, yeah. well, one thing, <laughs> one thing that was nice, I was commissioning at, um, editorials for their um for their website, and really, I, mm-hmm. I actually had very little to do with Al Jazeera America, the TV channel. It was it was all the web team, uh, and uh, which was a totally separate silo. And one thing I really liked was that we we paid writers well, much better than a lot of mm-hmm. places do, and um, and we really tried to bring in new writers and uh, diverse writers and uh, people who could speak directly to experiences that you know were being covered in the news and I, I was really proud of uh the work we were able to do in that context um the uh y- you're absolutely right about the major u.s cable news channels which i think you know with some honorable exceptions really make our our political culture a lot worse uh mm-hmm. and public less informed and actually one reason i think i was late so i don't, I don't own a tv um i'm one of those well, good for you and, <laughs> yeah, well, and and I used to uh, 
some years back in, in, like, in like the Obama years, I did watch a lot of MSNBC. Uh, if I was, if I was home during the day, it would be on in the background. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's really quite toxic. I mean, there are, you know, I like Chris Hayes and so on, but there's, uh, overall, I think it's, it's a very, I think the format, whether it's the channel you agree with or not, uh, is one that just fundamentally distorts the real issues, that emits a lot of mm-hmm. things, that has some deep kind of establishmentarian biases. And um, and and one thing about my not having a TV is that because I would read about Russiagate and I would read about it from reporters uh, and serious Russia analysts and academics and people with context for what was going on, uh, you know, I didn't fully, for me, like the story was Russiagate. Like that seemed mm-hmm. like a huge important story and it still does. But for a lot of people I know on the left, uh, the story was this conspiracy theory that Democrats were coming up with to explain why they lost the election or why they were going to lose the election or whatever it was. Uh, and I don't think I really appreciated why that was what people were focused on until I started to realize that MSNBC and just kind of cable news generally was obsessed obsessed with this story and with like the laziest, most sensationalist telling of it. I mean, the amount of time Joy Reid has spent hyping this story and saying like (laughs) weird, red baiting, xenophobic things. And as we know, Joy Reid is not a credible person in general. No. Um, Yeah. But see, I, I was not choosing to listen to her. I didn't really care mm-hmm. what Joy Reid was saying, and I was annoyed that everyone was so focused on that media discourse over, um, or, or you know, these Twitter idiots like Eric Garland over. Um, oh God, Eric Garland's the worst. Yeah, but like, but at the end of the day, like, none of that seems very important to me. I mean, I've come to accept that that is a thing that has happened, and there is a hysteria, and we do need to say something about it. So I am, but. Uh, but, but I got very annoyed for about the first year or so of talking about mm-hmm. Russiagate that we couldn't focus on the story itself. And I do feel like as, as, as things have progressed, and especially once the Mueller investigation started, once Comey was fired, um, and once Comey testified, I think like it's and, – and once indictments were issued against you know, Manafort and others, I think it's become impossible to deny the um, – mm-hmm. That, that, that there is a story. I mean, you know, frankly, the person who spends the most time denying that there's a story, of course, is the president, who multiple times a day now tweets about witch hunts and the collusion hoax and all the lives ruined. And I mean, I, I feel like right. people on the left, however dim a view they take of this story, should, you know, try to avoid playing into those talking points. Uh, yeah, and, yeah. No, I agree with that. You know, and I want to point out that what you said is so accurate. The reason so many on the left wrote it off and said this is just ridiculous conspiracy theory is because the Clintonites themselves were using it as an excuse as to why she lost the election as opposed to focusing on any of the things that they did that were wrong when they should have been looking within and doing sort of an accounting of where they screwed up and trying to fix those things. They did what, you know, what Joy Reid was doing. And I think that's why it reached the point that it reached, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I can't fault Hillary Clinton or her campaign for talking about this. It, it is a real thing that happened. Uh, I think that it's 
it does not absolve them of anything and is not a reason right. not to also talk about their messaging failures, their strategic failures and where to campaign, uh, just mm-hmm. basic problems with that candidate and the people that she surrounded herself with. And I also don't mm-hmm. think that Russiagate has any direct bearing on, um, you know, on, on, on sort of ideological or strategic splits within the Democratic Party. I mean, you can, can believe in single payer and free higher education as I do, and you can believe that the DNC needs to be reformed and that we need, you right. know, a new, a new breed of candidates, which I do. And you, you can believe all those things and n- none of that. Yeah depends either way on, on the fact of Russiagate. I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, yeah. my, my, I have multiple explanations for why I think the, the left has been kind of indifferent to this story, but, you know, one of them is that it, it's not, um, foreign policy per se is not something a lot of people on the left work on. Uh, criticism mm-hmm. of the American empire is, but, uh, and, and rightly so, but, but actually like kind of getting into the, the, the weeds of the stuff is, is, is just, it's, it's more considered a centrist thing for a variety of structural reasons. And one project I'm in mean, hmm. the fellow travelers blog is kind of aimed to change that. Like a lot, there's a lot of people in both the foreign policy community and the kind of emerging young left that would really like a more robust and serious left foreign policy conversation. So that's something I'm trying to help jumpstart. Um, and, uh, and that I hope is reflected in, in my writings, especially a long piece I did for the nation a few months ago. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of residual Cold War uh, cliches used by both mm-hmm. the right and the left when we talk about Russia. Um, and, and, and I've been trying to get people past that. Um, I've been trying mm-hmm. to frame it around questions of, global oligarchy, the way that Russia is far from being this kind of like alien foreign power threatening our way of life is is actually a reflection of the economic system we've pushed on them and on the whole world. Uh, and mm-hmm. Russia can actually be seen as a form of blowback um, for kind of our, our 90s arrogance. Um, and, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and something that points to, I think, the incompatibility of real democracy and the economic system that, that we've pushed, so neoliberalism, for lack of a better word, um, mm-hmm. you know, that we've, we've created a system uh, that where, where politicians are bought uh, and where just huge fortunes travel across borders and, uh, you know, and, and, and national electorates are, are kind of, uh, buffeted by by forces they don't really understand um right and and that's that's the that's the framing that i've been trying to push over over this kind of you know hackneyed cold war stuff yeah you know you mentioned the early 1990s and i think it's important to remember that um, both bill clinton and bush pushed for the privatization of the russian economy when the USSR broke up, they sent yeah. folks the, the over first. to Russia to teach. That's correct. Uh, yeah. And they sent folks to Russia to teach them how to be better oligarchs, how to. So I think the real story here is um, I'm a Bernie Sanders person. So what I would like to see happen is a discussion. You know, we talked about the United States, about um, the oligarchy, the 1%, wealth extraction, uh, income inequality. 
all of these issues that we're experiencing here in the United States, they are experiencing everywhere in the world. It's not isolated yeah. to the United States. So maybe the conversation needs to be, while we're talking about these things here in the U.S., how do those things relate to Russia? How do these things relate to other countries? And how do we make, uh, because we can't just fix the United States in this matter without touching these other things. And you're right, we do need a more robust foreign policy for this reason. Well, well yeah. I think Paul Manafort, if you study his career and maybe the fullest account of that was uh-huh. what I think Franklin Ford did in The Atlantic, but there, there are others. Um, uh, Paul Manafort, you know, going back to the Reagan era, uh, is, is just kind of enriching himself off of every foreign dictator he can, you know, almost certainly breaking laws that nobody's checking, uh, getting mm-hmm. super rich, uh, you know, laundering money, uh, and eventually one of the dictators, or, you know, uh, Let's say illiberal Democrats, to be generous, that that he's working with is uh, is Yanukovych, the uh, mm-hmm. president of Ukraine, uh, who is often cast as a Putin proxy, which is maybe going a little bit too far. He did represent at one point uh, a bare majority of the Ukrainian electorate, but certainly somebody who was uh, you know cutting all kinds of deals with Russia and who was Russia's favored. Uh, uh, leader in, in Ukraine and um and and after he cut a deal uh and accepted a lot of money uh you know counter to the to the will of Ukrainians at the time that set off uh huge protests in the capital uh in which he used deadly force and he was driven from power and so uh you know Manafort is 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 plugged into all of that and almost certainly by extension plugged into Moscow itself, uh, and 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 nobody cared until Trump won. No one really even cared that much uh, right. before Trump won, right? Uh, yep. Because Washington is crawling with people like this, uh, and they go yeah. unprosecuted. And um, you know, actually, so earlier today, um, Zephyr Teachout, uh, who I mm-hmm. have a lot of respect for, um, I'm Zephyr Teachout. I'm a law professor and I'm running to be the next Attorney General of the state of New York. We in New York have this extraordinary, big-hearted, big-brained, ambitious, loving, compassionate, open state. And yet our government has been just this rolling scandal of corruption cases, sexual uh, predators being pushed under the rug, And then most recently, these serious uh, sexual assault stories about our last attorney general. This is totally unacceptable. We have to close the door on this history of corruption and sexual assault and sexual harassment and the backdoor politics that is really poisoning our extraordinary state. I'm a constitutional and anti-corruption law professor, and I have spent my whole life fighting against corruption and fighting for a democracy where everybody has a voice and an economy where everybody has dignity. The next Attorney General of New York may be the single most important law enforcement officer standing up against the lawlessness and corruption of the Trump administration and facing head on this crisis in our democracy where people feel like the same laws don't apply to the rich and the poor. 
Just three days after Donald Trump took office, I joined an amazing team of lawyers suing Trump for violating the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution. And when I am the next Attorney General, I will use all the resources of our law and history to fight against the lawlessness and corruption of the Trump administration. In 2014, Governor Andrew Cuomo shut down a commission called the Moreland Commission that was investigating corruption in Albany. When he shut it down, I spoke out saying it needed to continue. And I even wrote a public letter to then Attorney General Eric Schneiderman insisting that he use the full power of his office to stand up against Cuomo's efforts to stop corruption investigations. It didn't earn me a lot of friends in Albany, um, but that's who I am. And that is who I will be as your Attorney General. We in New York need to insist on an Attorney General who is independent. We have a problem with corporate monopolies in this country. And I've been on the leading lines fighting against big banks and big corporate monopolies like Spectrum and your cable company for the last 10 years. After the financial crisis, I co-founded a grassroots group dedicated to breaking up big banks and using the tools, the legal tools of antitrust to take on corporate monopolies and to put more financial criminals in jail. The other thing that I think is really important for the next Attorney General of New York to do, even though she won't have legal, as many legal powers in this area, is stand up and be the leading voice in the country against our crisis of mass incarceration and structural racism in our criminal justice system. The next Attorney General should be standing up for speedy trials, against cash bail, for discovery reform, for marijuana legalization, and against a kind of culture of treating people like they don't matter because of the color of their skin, because of an addiction problem they may have, or because of the debt they may carry. We got to, and we can, with courage and passion and conviction, open a new window on a new era in New York politics, one based on openness, independence, courage, truth, and justice above all. Uh, Zephyr Teachout announced formally her, her run for New York Attorney General, replacing the disgraced Eric Schneiderman. Um, and she made her announcement in front of Trump Tower in Manhattan. Uh, and she gave an excellent speech, which I tweeted about, uh, in which she really laid out the case that Trump didn't just come from nowhere, that he came from New York real estate mm -hmm. and New York finance. And to say someone came from New York real estate and New York finance is another way of saying they, they came from the government of New York's failure to properly regulate real estate and finance. And so what she's running, you know, she didn't just hold uh, Schneiderman accountable for um, for for his horrible treatment of women, his, his uh, uh, assaults on women. Um, she also held him accountable, uh, as with so many other New York state politicians, including obviously Governor Cuomo, uh, mm -hmm. for uh, just kind of letting all of this corruption fester in the state. And uh, and and so to me, like, that's a domestic problem, but it's a domestic problem that has national and international uh, implications. Um, and, and, you know, what's true of Wall Street and the real estate sector here is true of K Street in Washington as well. Um, yeah. 
and it's it's all part of the same system of kind of funneling money around, much of which is probably illicit and much of which should be illicit, uh, but we've legalized so much corruption. Um, and, you know, what, what's fascinating, actually, about the way Russiagate is covered is a few weeks ago, uh, the Times had a huge story about um, about Saudi and UAE overtures to, uh, to Jared Kushner as well. And there's a lot mm-hmm. of reasons to think that the Saudis, the Emiratis, and for that matter, the Chinese, um, and the Turks with Michael Flynn and the Israelis, mm-hmm. obviously, that, that many governments were involved in trying to sway the Trump campaign to, to various ends. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of them have gotten as much attention as the Russians. Um, right. And I think, that's, I think that's because, although we're not at war with Russia, we do treat them as kind of an adversary, and we have this... Mm-hmm kind of leftover Cold War attitude, which is which is mutual, by the way. They, that's definitely true there as well. Um, whereas, you know, we're, we're allied with the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Israelis and, uh, and, and I suppose with the Turks, too, through NATO, even though it's a testy alliance. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and so, you know, the way that they meddle in Washington through... APAC, for example, or through yeah. uh, the Gulf states' investments in uh, the Brookings Institute and 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 other uh, think tanks, uh, the New America Foundation, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's all sort of treated as normal, whereas this this Russian role is uh, is is treated as espionage. And the truth is, it's it's all a form of depending on how you look at it, espionage or influence peddling. Um, Absolutely. Can the two even be separated, really? And politicians are just so uh, shameless in their relations to these mm-hmm. foreign governments. And, yep. you know, calling calling them puppets or Manchurian candidates kind of misses the point. I mean, the point is that they're bought. Uh, they're and bought. And the point is that they're, they're not ashamed and that there's no laws being enforced. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and that the Supreme Court has basically said for a decade or so that, that it's a free-for-all. Um, and, and so I think this is, this is where Tchad's message and Bernie's message and Elizabeth Warren's message. I mean, I think that, I think that what Democrats need to stand for, uh, if they're going to turn this around is, is rooting out corruption. Uh, and and Tchad said, you know, we can't actually control Trump unless I'm paraphrasing, but unless we, uh, you know, take a look under the hood in New York. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot to that. So. Yeah, it's a great speech, and she's so correct, um, which sort of leads me to want to talk about the IDC for a second. Uh, I know that mm-hmm. they are now disbanding, but the IDC is, has long controlled New York government, and the IDC is all about power and money, and it's a prime example of how bot congressmen get together from both sides of the aisle to uh, sort of feather their own nest. This is so. Just to explain for the audience, if they're not familiar, the IDC was an independent Democratic conference. Was a group of New York senators that created a power sharing agreement with the Republicans in the state Senate that went on for decades, and it was rooted in um, money. So the reason it was set up was a billionaire donor named Tom Golisano, who owns the company Paychecks. He put together these uh, a, a group of eight. I think it was eight New York senators with the, uh, Democratic senators with the Republicans, and they had meetings about doing this. Uh, Steve Pigeon and Roger Stone, yes, that Roger Stone was also involved. And um, what came of this 
was a means of thwarting progressive change in the state. Uh, said today, I want to say this for the benefit of the media. Uh, one of the Republicans said that he does not feel, I think his name is Lockett, that outsiders like Al Sharpton ought to be brokering this. First of all, I'm not brokering anything, I'm convening. But second of all, it seems very strange to me after an outsider named Galasano helped orchestrate the coup, that they don't want people like Sharpton to orchestrate the correction. I've got more votes in this state than Galasano, and I didn't pay for mine. At the expense of voters, and it was the bankers, the banksters, and the very wealthy, and the real estate developers that time and time again, if you look through um, the legislator that was legislation that was tabled, it was the real estate, the money, bank investments that were always coming out on the winning side of that. So... I don't understand, and I, I completely agree with what you're saying, I just don't understand why voters have been asleep for so long because the things that have been normalized in our country all of a sudden are blowing up because of Trump, but this stuff has been here for so much longer than Trump. And, um, I mean, I'm glad people are finally awake to it, but why do you think that is? Well, you know, it's been radicalizing for me personally, and I think for a lot of people to see how much New York in particular you know, New Yorkers can be accused of being very provincial uh, and, and mm -hmm. only caring about what goes on here. But the truth is, most people I know who talk about politics in New York are, are concerned about national or, to a lesser extent, international politics. And focusing on state and local, I mean, I've been getting more and more into it and, and getting to know more and more people who are passionate about that, uh, journalists and, and advocates of various kinds. But it's real. It, the thing I'm persistently shocked by is how little most New Yorkers uh, both kind of educated and politically inclined or not, really know about mm -hmm. any of this. Uh, wow. And, and how much the state party, which is effectively the state government, wants it that way. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think it's very clear, like, you know, in terms of voting in, in very local races, for instance, that you, you don't see a lot of signs, you don't, like, things come at randomly, and, and if, unless you're really plugged in, you can miss them. I've definitely had days where, like, I went out and voted for, you know, a judge or something solely because uh, somebody that I follow tweeted about it that morning, and otherwise I wouldn't have known. Mm. And I like to think I'm a pretty well-informed person. Uh, but, you know, the voter turnout in this state is, is extremely low. Uh, it's hard to register as a Democrat and pretty much impossible yeah. to vote meaningfully if you don't, um, which I, I recall uh, during the... 2016 New York Democratic primary, you know, I mm -hmm. knew so many young leftists who were, who had in the last few months before that gotten very excited about the Bernie Sanders campaign. And then it turned out they, they couldn't vote for him because yeah. you know, there was this far back ironclad deadline on registering as a Democrat and it wasn't something they'd done before. And, you know, that suited the Clinton campaign, but also incumbents uh, just mm -hmm. fine. And, and I mean, this is, uh, this is a machine system. It's very old. It's designed to reward, uh, uh, the same incumbents again and again. And it can create really perverse outcomes. I live in the district of, uh, state senator Jesse Hamilton, uh, mm -hmm. and on paper, and it's, it's easily one of the bluest 
places in the United States. I mean, this is a district consisting entirely of, you know, uh, educated white liberals and, uh, and immigrant communities of color, uh, and, um, and, and probably everyone in this district who voted voted for Hillary Clinton in, in, uh, November 2016. And, and, uh, on paper, Jesse Hamilton is, you know, a very blue Democrat with, with, the right positions on everything, except low key. Until very recently, he also supported Republican control of the state senate. Republican Senate majority there, they get to control the agenda, they get to control what bills come up to be to be voted on, yeah. they get to, like, the, uh, so a lot of the things that he, that we and the progressives would want to, um, to take a stand on, even though he ostensibly supports them, he will never have to vote on them because the Republicans will keep those laws from actually being brought up. Then and, and and frustrated is that the national party is completely on board with this. I mean, to yep. see, to see, including people who don't who can say whatever they want because they're not in office anymore. To see Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Joe Biden, you know, come out and endorse Andrew Cuomo, who oh, has personally conspired. To, I mean, in addition to every other terrible thing about him, has personally conspired to keep Republicans in control of the New York State Senate. Yeah. Uh, yep. you know, like, how is that, how is it that Bernie Sanders gets called out for not technically putting the Democratic label next to his name, even though he has always and forever caucused with Democrats and, and yep. uh, you know, supported Democrats and campaigned for Democrats and has a totally down the line, very liberal record on that. And, and, and yet he gets accused of disloyalty. And meanwhile, you have all these triangulators and centrists who are supposedly so proud to be Democrats, and they're yeah. and they're yeah. protecting Andrew Cuomo, who wants Republican control of the state Senate. Like it, it, it absolutely beggars belief. And oh, and I but it, but some of it is ignorance. Like Keith Ellison, who certainly a good guy, uh, you know, got in some trouble some sometime last year because he I think tweeted something nice about maybe it was Hamilton, I forget some one of the IDC senators and local progressives let him have it yeah and it was that's clear right. that as a non-new yorker he he was he totally unaware of this problem mm -hmm. i've had to explain mm -hmm. it to multiple relatives many of whom are daily new york times readers probably all of whom are i've had to explain this to them and 
they they can't quite believe it. They can't like like yeah. it should be one of the bigger stories in the country that the the second biggest blue state, you know, basically conspired to to promote uh, a Potemkin Republican yeah. Party to block progressive legislation. And it's incredibly yeah. obscure within and without that state. Yeah, so, and you know, I, I'm I particularly no, and I do too. It angers it angers me, and I was so disgusted. I have to be. I have to be honest. With you, the whole Andrew Cuomo thing has my mind blown. And Hillary Clinton should just take a seat right now. For all of the times she said women that didn't support her should have a special place in hell, are looking to have you know boys chase them. All of that that commentary she said just went out the window when she chose Andrew Cuomo over Cynthia Nixon. Are you kidding me with that one? I still can't believe it. Cynthia Nixon I mean, is a I, great candidate. I, I can't believe that there are intelligent, well-informed people who believe that Hillary Clinton's marshalling of, of arguments like that is anything other than a cynical ploy that Hillary Clinton <laughs> genuinely exactly, committed exactly. to. I mean, I can't believe there are people who think Hillary Clinton is genuinely committed to um, racial progressivism when you look at the totality of her career, even when you just, um, the, the strategies that her campaign used when they were uh, running mm -hmm. against Obama in 08, which I remember well. Yep. I was an Obama yep. part of the time. Senator, as it has reached its apex in their tone-deaf, arrogant, and insensitive reaction to the remarks of Geraldine Ferraro, your own advisors are slowly killing your chances to become president. Senator, their words and your own are now slowly killing the chances for any Democrat to become president. In your tepid response to this Ferraro disaster, you may sincerely think you are disenthralling an enchanted media and writing an unfair advance bestowed on Senator Obama. You may think the matter has closed with Representative Ferraro's bitter, almost threatening resignation letter. But in fact, Senator, you are now campaigning as if Barack Obama were the Democrat and you were the Republican. As Shakespeare wrote, Senator, that way madness lies. You have missed a critical opportunity to do what was right. No matter what Ms. Ferraro now claims, no one took her comments out of context. She had made them on at least three separate occasions, then twice more on television this morning. Just hours ago on NBC Nightly News, she denied she had made the remarks in an interview only at a paid political speech. In fact, the first time she spoke them was 10 days before that California newspaper published them, not in a speech, but in a radio interview. On February 26th, quoting... If Barack Obama were a white man, would we be talking about this as a potential real problem for Hillary? If he were a woman of any color, would he be in this position that he's in? Absolutely not. The content was inescapable. Two minutes earlier, a member of Senator Clinton's finance committee, one of her hill raisers, had bemoaned the change in allegiance by superdelegate John Lewis from Clinton to Obama and also the endorsement of Obama by Senator Dodd. You know, the, I mean, to see them say like, oh, well, it's if you're doing better with the white working class in West Virginia, that's, that's, you know, like if Bernie is, that's because he's capitalizing on racism and he's a white supremacist. Yes, like God. Literally, you did exactly the same thing when you were running yeah. against a black man. Right. And, and you were very unsubtle about it. And, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you did a worse thing, I would say. It was much more deliberate and, and race yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, I, I am so glad that the Clintons are now are no longer in control of the Democratic Party. I mean, it's terrible that what it took was getting Donald Trump elected president to do that because nothing yeah. was worth that. But uh, it would have been nice yeah. if the Democrats had cleared <laughs> yeah. the Clintons out one or two decades ago. But here we are now, and, and we're only just having the national conversation about how 
Bill Clinton, you know, uh, treated Monica Lewinsky horribly mm-hmm. in, in a way that, like, liberals really understand. Um, mm-hmm. But I, you know. Uh, no, you're right. The other thing is the DLC. I mean, I I am time and time again surprised at how many folks don't know who the DLC is and the influence that they had with Bill Clinton and Patty Harriman and the Coke and Coke industry monies. This was. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the problem. When, the, when this group, uh, the third way, was it, I mean, blue dog Democrats, third way, no labels. It's DLC, all, they're all, Repu- yeah. they're, they're all Republicans. I mean, when they were attacking Elizabeth Warren in, in 2013, their entire board of directors was made up of hedge fund managers and Wall Street executives. Uh, this is just like the Democratic Leadership Council that you just talked about that held so much power over the Clinton administration in the 1990s. You, you point out that's where it started, the deal with Wall Street. That is, that the threat that Democrats will never be elected unless you let us help you. And help you meant let's take over that party. The DLC shut down in 2011, uh, but not before they pulled in corporate money from both Wall Street bankers and the Koch brothers and convinced Bill Clinton to repeal Glass-Steagall. Right. to pass NAFTA and to sign the Telecommunications Act and ended up paving the way for conservative media machine that we fight every day. Third wave is just nothing more than the DLC on steroids. They are Republicans through and through. The de- the, this is when the Democratic Party became more right-wing and it was because of the DLC, it was because of Bill Clinton and the and all of that money coming from the Coke Industries. This, is, this was something that happened. And, and here we are in 2018, and I'm pretty sure that half the Democratic base is unaware of it. And I just don't understand why that is the case. Um, is this a failure of the media reporting this stuff because because of the media is corporate owned and they really don't want this stuff? They don't want the populace to be aware of it because obviously they want control. Or is it just people choosing to be indifferent? Or, or is it team sports? Like, what what do you think the reason well, is for that? Well, it's it's definitely the first thing. There, the the okay. media. And especially the largest, you know, the, the cable news channels and stuff have a, a, a systematic interest in, in keeping the public off money issues and on culture war issues, which are, you know, easy, easy to explain, easy to polarize. I mean, with culture war issues, it's not that they're mm-hmm. not important. They, they absolutely are. And, and for that matter, they all have economic dimensions to them, which I don't want to minimize at all. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, racial or, uh, racial justice or gay mm-hmm. rights or whatever those are those are uh, those are economic issues too abortion rights but absolutely uh, but but one thing about those issues that makes them I think attractive to the donor class and to uh, uh, cable news producers and so on uh, and 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 on both sides of, of these divides um, is everyone has an opinion on them uh, everybody can sort of draw on their own personal experience to have their good or bad opinion about them. You can just book whatever colorful characters to come on and, and talk about uh, mm-hmm. you know, how they feel about these things. And, um, you know, meanwhile, like, it's kind of hard to explain, like, you know, money laundering through New York real estate. Uh, and, right, and right. Especially, and especially to explain it in, like, a sober and intelligent and reported way and not just... Uh, you know, in a kind of ranty way, um, it, it, these are issues that aren't, aren't sexy. They don't drive traffic. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the the painting Russiagate as a, as a foreign, 
Titanic is 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 apparently yeah. raiding gold and and painting it as like yeah. a white collar crime story is is not. Um, that stuff is is boring and it's hard to explain. It's especially hard to explain given how much has been legalized. And what's attractive to me about the emerging left and let's just say about Bernie's rhetoric, for instance, mm-hmm. is he is really good at taking these deep systemic structural problems in our society and communicating about them with moral fervor, you know, and, and yeah. connecting, connecting, you know, these numbers about how wealth is being concentrated in the 1% that he can always rattle off with, um, with the deep kind of anger and despair that I think Americans across the spectrum feel right now and feel is ignored and that, you know, one, one expression of it has been Trumpism. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think he, I wish we had more or really almost any mainstream media figures who communicate in those terms, who can communicate in terms of right and wrong when it comes to bedrock economic issues, when it comes, you know, mm-hmm. when it comes to the haves and have nots and to the concentration of wealth and power in the hands of a few. I mean, I, I wish... I wish there were room in mass outlets for that kind of message because I think it's pretty clear there's an audience for them. Right. So uh, I do too, and it seems to me that our our only way around that is to either break up this media consolidation or bring back the fairness doctrine or maybe some sort of remedy of both. But there really isn't a robust, independent, public service-oriented news organization out there. I'd say the closest thing we have to it is democracy now. I would give credit to ProPublica. I mean, ProPublica is oh, yeah. very, ProPublica's great. Yeah. you know, reader-oriented, but, um, but uh, I mean, I feel like they do real journalism, and I feel, they, you know, they I do. do a lot of... Well, let me reframe that. They do exist, David, but what I'm saying is they don't have the same audience level or access. I think the more important thing is they don't have access to the same sort of media platform audience level that the major uh, broadcasters do. How do we remedy that? How do we get these voices heard across the spectrum? It's hard to know. I mean, I think it will involve new media technologies for sure, and, you know, especially uh the internet is as much as social media platforms have have us all freaked out recently. Um, Because I I think one structural problem with cable news is the audience that, I mean, if you, if you watch any of the cable news channels uh, and you get to a commercial break, it becomes very clear that all of this is just about selling uh, medications and reverse (laughs) mortgages and so on to elderly white people. And that's, that's, uh, that's that's who it's all for. And so if we have political parties and a political establishment that is, you know, laser focused on, on the audience of cable news channels, then what they're really focused on is old white people. Uh, so mm-hmm. any anything we do to try to, you know, to, to try to broaden the media sphere is going to have to be focused on platforms that reach people who aren't old white people. Um, and, and of course, mm-hmm. part of the problem is that old white people have all the money in this country. And uh, young people <laughs> right. have the numbers, and and you know the about the only thing I'm optimistic about is that the millennial generation is you know only five or ten years away from from dominating the electorate or whatever it is, and mm-hmm. and, and doing so for for many decades, um, and 
there's good reason to think, no matter how much our system distorts democracy, which it does, that that ultimately that will change things uh, and, mm-hmm. and in in overwhelmingly positive ways. Um, but you know, meanwhile, we're basically run by uh, a shrinking minority of uh, a, a kind of a gerontocracy, and and that that's why everything is so mm-hmm. messed up right now. And cable news, I think, plays directly into that and and feeds that. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's interesting because I hadn't really thought deeply on that, but the ads that you mentioned are predominantly the ads you see on cable news, and that's clearly oh, what yeah. you're. Um, yeah. You know, and gold, gold so, themes and stuff. Yeah, no, you, you right. quickly realize it's not for you if, yeah. you're, if you're in your 30s or whatever. Right, right. So hopefully just a shift change in the uh, generations will, will help remedy this. But right now it seems to me that there is, you know, like ProPublica, you did name a few sites, Jacob and I like. There are sites out there, but they just don't seem to have the reach. Um, that, you know, that an MSNBC would per se. So I'm hoping, uh, because I think if more people have access to the information, the things we're discussing right now, it would change the way they vote. And I think they would be more dialed into, like today we have a big primary, you know, here in California and many other states. And to me, the election that's going on today is so important because it's going to put forth the candidates that are going to be up for the general, which could change everything. Um, so primary elections are important, and a lot of people don't vote in them. It's tragic. I, I, I and you know, at least in New York, like I was saying earlier, I mean that that apathy uh, is is exactly what the state party is counting on to make sure that nothing ever changes. So, you know, I think I think yeah. um, this is not a very original insight, but I think that podcasts and social media platforms like Twitter and Instagram and so on are. Um, you know, are places where people my age and younger have been able to uh, build real audiences and and speak honestly to people. And there are many mm-hmm. complaints about Twitter that we don't have to get into now, but uh, I have found that for me, it's given me a voice, it's given me editorial control, it's given me mm-hmm. a significant audience to reach, it's connected me to many, many people in in media and academia and policy uh, and including yourself, um, and I've been able to do that on my own terms, and I'm, I am dependent on one weird dysfunctional corporation, which is Twitter, but uh, but they basically stay out of my way, uh, and I don't yeah. have to do much to keep them happy, uh, or really anything, except except uh, get into fights with Nazis. They don't like that. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but even that you can do to a certain extent. Um, and and so, like, I I have found that I have been able to make myself, I think, a meaningful voice in the public debate without relying on the approval of any traditional gatekeepers. And I think they're, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not the only person who can say that by a long shot. So, you know, I, that's where I kind of see the energy on the left right now. Yeah, and I agree. And so hopefully all of these things continue to grow. Hopefully we keep, uh, I think net neutrality is really an important key to that, which is probably why, you know, the oligarchy is so gung-ho about bringing that back time and time again, because it does allow for more equality out there. And you're right, I think out of all the social media platforms, Twitter seems to be the most hands-off as far as um, being A, a gatekeeper, B, be selling your data all over the place. I have a big problem with Facebook and the things that they've done. Um, And Google's a pretty crappy company too, let's be honest. Um, yeah, well, you I know, do- Google, 
Google at least creates things that are useful, even if they're also mining all our data and selling it while they do it. Um, <laughs> Facebook, yeah. you used to be able to say that in a narrow way you still can, but increasingly Facebook seems like like more trouble than it's worth and something we should yeah. be trying to wean ourselves off of as a society. Twitter, mm -hmm. um, Twitter is interesting and doesn't really fit in the same category as Facebook and Google. It's not nearly as big, uh, I mean, as a company or the user base. Um, but also, I think it, um, Twitter is very misunderstood, I think, uh, including mm -hmm. by the people who run it. Um, the reason that Twitter has the influence that it does is because if you if you situate it between, on the one hand, Facebook, the biggest media platform in, in human history, and on the other hand, all traditional media companies, you know, cable channels, newspapers, mm -hmm. radio stations, whatever, um, mm -hmm. and you, you, you look at Twitter uh, compared to those two things, you know, traditional media is entirely run by elite gatekeepers who you know, have all kinds of agendas and biases, and they decide, you know, what gets to, to have a platform and what doesn't. Uh, and, um, you know, they can compete with each other, uh, which, which creates some flexibility. But, uh, but everyone is kind of beholden to these platforms, and, uh, and as mm -hmm. we know, they can shut out whole viewpoints, um, like, uh, like, you know, the Palestinian viewpoint, for instance. Um, right, right. And then, and then, um, You've got, uh, or let's just say socialist viewpoints. They can shut those out. Um, and then mm -hmm. you, you, on the other hand, you have Facebook, which has, you know, more or less the entire world or the entire world with electricity on it. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, and, and their goal is to kind of give everyone the same kind of coddled experience of, of, of just talking with their, you know, with their high school buddies all the time and, and not, uh, and, and, you know, seeing stuff they already believe and kind of being reinforced. And the unique thing that, and, and everyone basically has the same experience on Facebook so that everyone is addicted and keeps giving it their data. But Twitter, which has no clear business model, um, you know, is, is a kind of interesting in-between point because it's open to everybody. Everyone can come mm -hmm. on, everyone can set up an account, and anyone could theoretically you know, get a reply from a celebrity or go viral unexpectedly. Uh, but at the same time, if you really study Twitter and how it works in practice, it's a very tiny minority of users who command the vast majority of, uh, yeah. of attention on it. Um, and that includes an extremely tiny minority of very famous people, your, your Trumps, your Kanye's, you know, et cetera. Right. Uh, and then a much larger but still tiny minority uh, let's say in the tens or hundreds of thousands or whatever it is of, you know, people with fairly significant followings who, uh, who, who are disproportionately concentrated in certain influential industries and, and sectors. Um, and the interesting thing about Twitter is that it is possible to bootstrap your way into those ranks and be someone with some attention yeah. and cloud on Twitter. But it's not just handed to you. It's not it's not right. just something that anybody can do. But if you if you are diligent about it and you have certain certain talents, um, which we could broadly call communicating talents, um, mm -hmm. then uh, then you can actually force your way into the conversation without any gatekeepers. And you know many people have done this. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's very frightening for the traditional gatekeepers because, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because it really dilutes their power. And when I've gotten into, I don't want to get into any specific examples, but when I've gotten into fights with prominent writers or editors, um, you know, I think there's often been an undertone in those fights, like, who does this guy think he is? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the truth is, like, it doesn't really matter who I am. It doesn't matter if I have a job or not. It doesn't matter, like, uh, you know, if, if they if they like me or not. What matters is that I'm right, I think, and that mm-hmm. a lot of people are seeing me win an argument with them. And that's all, at the end of the day, that media is, is, is you mm-hmm. know, who can get and hold the attention of an audience. Um, so I think social media and Twitter specifically is as, as good a way to do that as any. And I think people underestimate it at their peril. Yeah, I agree with that. And actually, I've had in my mind for a while now that I would like to see Twitter uh, grow more into a broadcast media company, meaning that, you know, they acquired Periscope. And I would think um, the future of Twitter would be with them having live broadcasting as a news media, as each news media station would. Like, your Twitter feed could be your broadcast station, so you could have the videos up there. As, as the same people will point out, Twitter has also become a place where Nazis organize. Uh, and, yep. Um, and, but as soon as you ask Twitter to, like, decide that, you know, that it's good that Black Lives Matter activists or trans right activists uh, are, are able to find each or socialists are able to find each other, uh, but it's bad that Nazis do, you know, then, then you're asking a company that really has no coherent theory of this to, to lay into it. And, and I think that's a problem, yeah. Twitter needs better harassment policies than it has, and they have, I think, made some progress in that regard. But I think people do sort of have to accept that when you, when you ask for, you know, the freedom for marginalized communities to express themselves, that's going to include some communities that maybe we would prefer to keep marginalized, like, you know, Gamergate. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. uh, or men's rights activists Richard or whatever. Richard Spencer, and, yeah. Yeah, and it, it becomes, uh, anarchic and it alienates a lot of people and obviously the burden of that disproportionately falls on, uh, women and people of color and, and other minorities. Um, but, uh, I, I don't think I, I think that if Twitter tries too much to orient itself around traditional advertising models, it will lose some of what makes it yeah. yes and exciting to people. Yeah, I don't know. I got I don't know if you saw I got quote tweeted by Candace Owens last week, which was just fabulous. <laughs> yeah, I mostly stay away from that crowd, but but they're there. We all know they're there. Um, they're I mean, there. I what I know. do to make the site tolerable is I just block a lot of uh, alt-right troll accounts. I mean, my attitude yeah, is if you're, if you're a tiny account yelling, you know, anti-Semitic things at me, I don't ever need to yeah. talk to you. Uh, and I might, right, have, so, right. you know, I must have hundreds or thousands of accounts blocked. But but that makes the platform usable for me. I agree. I agree. I just mute yeah. them. Um, so I wanted to ask you one last question about NATO. We briefly talked about NATO, but I think right now, so um, my family's from Malmo, Sweden, which is in the south of Sweden. Um, and, you know, Sweden has traditionally been a neutral country. Uh, my grandfather, uh, who was born in Riga, Latvia, lived through um, Stalin and then lived through Hitler in Germany because he moved to Germany after leaving Latvia, believe it or not. 
Um, but ended up back in Sweden. Um, government got him safe passage. Uh, so I still have family there, and we've been having an ongoing conversation about NATO because Sweden, which is a traditionally neutral country, and most Swedes prefer it that way, but, you know, they've had these host contracts with them since 2016. And the new government that they're in Sweden is, is very much um, neoliberal, more so than a traditionally social democratic government that they've seen. And my cousins are always fond of saying, well, everything that happens in the United States eventually reaches us 10 or 15 years later. So uh, I feel for what's coming at them if that's the case. Uh, so they're being told that, that if they don't join NATO, trying to be spoon-fed them this idea that if they don't join NATO, they have to look at Russia as possibly uh, invading them. I mean, it's, tr it's turning up a different sort of Russia hysteria than what we have in here in the United States, but it is Russia hysteria nonetheless. You know, and my cousin is often fond of saying that, well, why do, am I supposed to feel this way? It was the Russians that ultimately defeated the Nazis in World War II. Nobody wants to talk about that. And, you know, there's been this Cold War that probably should should have never gotten off the ground to begin with, but that would be a different conversation. So there's there's a conversation going back and forth here, and I'm curious as to what your opinion is on NATO and um, how this could possibly relate to Sweden and Russia. Yeah, well, um, I, I can't speak with any specific expertise on Sweden. I mean, I, I've, I've never been there or studied it in depth. I know it's basic profile in the world, but um, about mm -hmm. NATO more generally, I can say I, I have written multiple times, including in my big nation, Russia piece, uh, cautioning against NATO expansion generally. Uh, usually I'm not talking about Sweden. Usually I'm talking about uh, Eastern European countries, well, especially mm -hmm. Ukraine and Georgia, which has kind of been on the table for a little while. Um, and which I think the most hawkish Americans would like to see NATO expand into. Um, right. You know, but I, I know from my time in Russia and from studying, uh, you know, their, uh, their international relations that they are still angry about waves of NATO expansion, uh, in the post Cold War period into uh, the Baltic states, into Poland mm -hmm. and uh, Romania, and so on, and and uh, it's you know high on the list of grievances that pretty much everyone in Russia has against the United States. Um, this this sense that the U.S. Uh, instead of kind of demilitarizing Europe at the end of the Cold War uh, expanded its footprint, you know, closer and closer to the Russian border, and would love to keep doing so. Uh, it's not really clear to me why uh, Sweden needs to be in NATO. Um, yeah. And I, I think we already have countries uh, that are closer to St. Petersburg and Moscow that are already in NATO. And it seems mm -hmm. like there's real value to Sweden being a neutral country. Uh, I mean, there are, there are Jews who are alive today because uh, Sweden was a neutral country in World War II. That's right. I think, and Sweden's right. uh, international role in... Um, you know, diplomacy and peacekeeping and so on is, is all facilitated by its neutrality. So, and, and I don't think there's any imminent Russian threat to Sweden at all. And I think if there was, NATO probably would come to its defense. So, no, I, I don't, I, I haven't looked at the internal Swedish politics on this at all, but I can't really think of any good reason why Sweden should join NATO. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, okay, so you're pretty much thinking exactly on the same line that I'm thinking on. It just doesn't make sense to me, other than the fact that this 
this current government has has um, been showing some neoliberal tendencies, and um, I think it's just part and parcel to that, so to speak. Yeah. Um, did you have anything else to follow up? No, I mean, I think I think we covered the main things. I have some pieces coming out soon. Stuff people should read. Okay. Remain to to this interview are are uh, a piece I did in BuzzFeed about why Russia is right. really an American story. The uh, Nation piece, which was out in print last month. Uh, for a little while, um, non-Russian topics at um, Jewish Current. Actually, I'll, I'll plug that your uh, oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, your your listeners, Jewish or not, should um, should subscribe to the new revamped Jewish Current, which just came out with okay. its first print issue under under younger uh, uh, mm-hmm. leadership. And um, I've had uh, a long piece about Woody Allen in there, and a long piece about Norman Podhoritz, and I'm working on another that I won't spoil here, but it will also be long and about uh, a Jewish man of an older generation that I have some issues with. So, oh, okay, um, excellent. Yeah, and um, uh, so people should definitely get into Jewish Currents. There's a lot of great stuff there, um, and uh, check we it had out. a really wonderful launch party a week ago, um, and people. Uh, should go to the Fellow Travelers blog um, and uh, if they're interested in left foreign policy ideas. Um, and they can follow me at David Cleon, K-L-I-O-N. 